Anybody relate to that tension ever in your life? Yeah, no. You've never had that problem before. Never any kind of tension between you, what you want to do and what you know God wants you to do. In fact, that's a, that's a common battle that you and I probably engage in most likely every day. There's a moment where we have to make that choice in small ways and then in large ways about, is this going to be something I want to do at the expense of what I know what God ultimately wants to do through me? This morning, we're going to take some time to talk about this concept. We're, we're going to dive one last time into the book of Luke, and we're going to look at Jesus and God's will. And as we've walked through the different passages in Luke that we've, we've engaged with, you've seen these stories and these encounters that Jesus have had with people. And, and in this story in particular, we're going to be in Luke 22, where, where Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane in preparation for what he knows is next, which is the cross which is his arrest, and then he's, his beatings, and then eventually he goes to the cross to, to die for the sin of all the world for us. And so when he comes to that, you and I, as we look at this passage and talk about, again, we're, we're walking with Jesus. We're learning to understand how to live this life and following him from his example. But I want you and I to understand in this encounter that we're going to see that he has with the Father and with his disciples, we have to remember that Jesus, at all times when he was on this planet, he was fully God and fully man. You and I can't understand that cognitively, but we have to trust that because what you and I are going to see is that Jesus, in his humanity, engaging this place of having to come to grips with the Father's will and knowing what that would mean for him personally, and once again having to lay down any of his own humanity to submit himself fully to what God had purposed for him to do when he was on the planet. And what I want you to see as we go through this passage is that you and I don't have to be Jesus, and we're definitely not God. We've all figured that one out. But we live in the same humanity that Jesus lived in, and we have to come to the same moments of decision in our life. Will we fully embrace God's will in our life? Will we fully submit to what He wants to do? Or will we choose our own path? And that's the question and the tension that we're going to talk about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Luke 22. I'm going to start reading at verse 39. We'll go to verse uh, 46. So it says, Jesus uh, went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So I want to look at Jesus and then also the disciples because I want to, the disciples, I think, describe and kind of react the way many times you and I react when we're confronted with something that's bigger, something that's difficult, something that will bring discomfort to us knowing that that's part of God's plan and what he's laid out in our lives. And their reaction, I think, mirrors our reaction sometimes to the things that we walk through. And that is for you and I, when we're confronted with what we know is what God's purpose is in a moment or God's will is for our life, that we want to say yes. And most of us don't say no. But in that tension of wanting to say yes and not saying no, what we end up doing is falling somewhere in the middle, which is instead of yes or no, is we just avoid it altogether. We just kind of disconnect. We almost kind of pretend it's not really happening. And we just go about our lives as they are, hoping somehow God will leave us alone. 
and something different will happen or the feeling will go away or something will change so that we can get back to the normal rhythm of life which is comfortable and easy and predictable in the life that we like to live. I believe that's kind of where the disciples found themselves. And so I want to start by just highlighting three things about the disciples that are ways that you and I and the ways that they did avoid God's will. How do we somehow try to get out of it? So look at verse 45. The the first thing that's true about avoiding God's will is that we do that by living in denial. So verse 45, it says, When he rose, so I'm about Jesus from prayer, and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. So catch the context. So Jesus keeps telling his disciples, By the way, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. And they, they don't want to hear that. They don't want to accept that. But they know something bad is coming. And they know that Jesus has predicted this. And so they're leaning like, Yeah, this is going to happen. So they know that he's kind of in secret. He's in this garden. And so there's this anticipation. And he says to them, Pray. In fact, we've seen the passage, he says it twice. But he tells them to pray. This is the God of the universe in human flesh that they've been with for three years, who they've seen do miracles and done amazing things and said things authoritatively that they've never really understood before, but now they do from Jesus. And he says to them, I want you to pray. What do they do? They fall asleep. How in the world, when the God of the universe asks you to pray, do you fall asleep? Actually, physiologically, sleep many times is a reaction against things that we don't want to face. When somebody goes through deep depression, they sleep a lot. Because it's a mechanism within us that if I sleep, somehow I avoid having to confront the challenge in front of me. And so we have a tendency to do that. So when we're in times where we know there's something in front of us, suddenly we get lazy or we get sleepy. Or when you're sitting in you know, a warm auditorium for too long and the pastor's really boring, you start to nod off. Not that any of you have ever done that before, and not that I see it happening, although we have lots of cameras to make sure we can see everybody who does sleep. It is a, it is a mechanism within our own body, physiologically, that we do that. And it's a form of denial. As though if I fall asleep and I wake up, everything will be better. But when we wake up, nothing changes. So Jesus says to the disciples, pray, and they fall asleep. And they fall asleep, why? Because they're exhausted with sorrow, because they know something's coming that's going to cause their world to turn upside down. That it's going to cause pain and suffering and discomfort. And because of that, they disengage and they start to move into this kind of mode of denial. And you and I have a tendency to do that. That we know that something's not right in our life. We know that maybe God's pushing us a certain direction. But we don't really want to embrace it. So we think somehow if we just ignore it, it'll go away. I won't have to deal with it. A couple of years ago, I was driving from Sherwood to Newbury up in Oregon. And that's that stretch of uh, highway there is about 8 to 10 miles long. And it's in Sherwood. This kind of, there's a smaller community. And then there's Newburgh. And there's really nothing between it except in Oregon, lots of trees. And so when you drive that stretch, you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. And so I was leaving Sherwood for me, heading back to Newburgh. And as, as I was driving, I, I just came out of Sherwood, and I'm looking for, in front of me, and the entire highway is filled with smoke. So the first thing I thought, well, there's, there's a forest fire, or there's some, a car caught on fire on the side of the road. There's something is burning, and it literally covered both sides of the highway. And so I'm driving along, and I'm driving, as I'm driving, I'm anticipating, okay, I'm going to come up on, there's a hillside on fire, there's a tree burning, something's happening. And for eight miles, the thickness of the smoke didn't let up, but I couldn't find the source of the fire. I couldn't see. Nothing was burning that I could see. And all of us, you could tell people as we're driving, I'm passing through. Everyone's like got this puzzled look on their face like, what is going on? I'm looking for the source of the, the smoke. 
And finally, as I came down the hill coming into Newburgh, because I got, finally got some perspective, down at the bottom of the hill as I was catching up, I realized all of this smoke was coming from one car. Now, that's big news in Oregon because they're a little bit ridiculous about the environment, over the top sometimes. And if you have a smoking car, your life's in danger because somebody might not like you. And as I got up, I'm thinking, what in the world is this guy doing? And as I drove up next to him, I could tell as I looked into the window, he knew that his car was smoking, but he didn't want to stop. And I don't know if he was on his way to his mechanic or what he was thinking, but you could tell there was something in him that says, I know it's bad, but I don't really want to know how bad it is. I don't want to pull over because I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm just going to keep moving forward. He had filled the smoke with highway, and who knows, if he went a little bit further, maybe his car was going to explode. And how many times you and I live our lives that way? And what's crazy is that everybody around us knows. They know what smoke we're blowing. Maybe they know what smoke we're smoking, but they know stuff's going on in our life, and you and I just ignore it, thinking, it'll just go away. Just so you know, God never goes away. And when God wants to get a hold of your life, he will never, ever, ever give up pursuing you. He will harass you. He will hound you. He will go after you. The smoke will never clear until you stop and you listen and you respond to his voice. Living in denial doesn't work. Second thing that we have a tendency to do is to avoid God's will. We do it by giving in to temptation. Jesus says to them in verse 46, he says, why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up and pray. So, and it's the second time he says it, so you won't fall into temptation. What was the temptation? Falling asleep? No. The temptation for them was running. See, Jesus knew what was coming next. And he knew they were going to be tested to their very limits because he knew that their life was going to be on the line, as was his. And the natural instinct when your life is on the line for most people is to run the other way. So he's saying, pray that you won't fall into the temptation to do what you're about to do, which is to run, which is to reject me, which is to turn your back, to isolate yourself from me, to get away from this one man who's going to cause you great pain. He says, don't give into it. But what did they do? They fell asleep. They gave into the temptation. And we see as the story unfolds, if we read further, when the arresting party shows up, none of them sticks around. They all run. Because many times when we're confronted with God's will, that's our reaction. We start to get a clearer picture of what God's up to, and we're like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not the way I want to go. It's like Jonah, when God confronted Jonah and said, go to Nineveh. That's the last thing that Jonah had laid out for his will, for his life. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew in Nineveh were people he didn't like. In fact, he didn't want to go and tell them that God loved them and would forgive them if they would repent because he wanted them to die. He was really a great guy. That was Jonah. So he went, what did he do? He ran. Somehow thinking he could outrun God and get away to the point where God would be quiet and the volume would be turned down and he could just go back to life as normal. He ran the other direction. Why? Because he gave into that temptation to try to run away from what God had already purposed. See, you and I have a tendency to react that way, that we run from God. We try to get away from him. We try to distance ourselves. Somehow we get to the point where we think, I'm far enough away that he can't touch me anymore. He can't harass me. He can't pull me back in. It's that avoidance. And here's the thing. When God has purposed it, you can't avoid it. You can't. You can maybe delay it, but eventually God is going to fulfill his purpose. And it's better for you and I just to finally say, I give up. I surrender. I yield to what you want to do because it's better for us if we do that. And you remember when you were in school and you had to do an oral report or a speech, which is everybody's favorite thing to do. 
You know, most, most of the time, 95% of the population hates public speaking. I hated public speaking. That's why God made me a pastor. But we do. And you remember when you're in school and so you know you have to do it, so you, you like create a visual aid and you're all ready to go and that day comes and everybody comes to class and you can feel the tension. It's so thick. Nobody wants to get up in front of their peers and make a fool of themselves and say something wrong. And so what does everybody do? Nobody volunteers. Now, when your last name begins with the letter A, you're in trouble. Because when nobody volunteers, the teacher defaults to alphabetical order. I always wish they would flip it. Never had a teacher say, let's start with Z today. That would have been nice. But I learned that, that eventually I was going to have to go first. And then I realized, if I go first, I get it over with. And with 30 people in a class, if I go number one, then there's 29 other people that get to squirm for the next hour, wondering when their name will be called. And so I realized to give me peace, I am just going to submit to this and submit early so that I can go ahead and take care of it and it'll be done and then I can move forward. But how many times do we just avoid thinking? And it's like, I know I remember before I would go first, I was thinking, I'm hoping that in the next 30 minutes, some world catastrophe happens so I don't have to do my oral report. Anybody relate to that? It never came. And the same thing with God's will. God's not going to give up. He's going to continue to pursue And so you and I cannot give in to this temptation to run because we can't outdistance ourselves. We can't run from God. We have to stay where God wants us to be and submit to his will. And then the third thing we do in avoiding God's will is we do it by treating Jesus' commands as though they were suggestions. Now, you and I don't do this intentionally, but Jesus says, so verse 40, so they get to the garden and Jesus says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. That was not a suggestion. That was a command. Jesus tells his disciples, this is what you're supposed to do right now. You are supposed to pray. And when the God of the universe tells you to pray, what should you do? You should pray. Because he knows what he's talking about. And you know, when, we, when you first come to that understanding of who Jesus is, and you embrace God's grace, and you begin to follow him, there's that urgency of truly being obedient. That when God says something, or when you read something from his word, and he speaks to you, you have this disposition, this default to obey, almost to the point where you're almost borderline legalistic. You want to do it because your heart is right, and you want to obey. But then something happens over time. That urgency for obedience starts to slowly wane a bit. And instead of being really focused on obeying God, we become selectively obedient which means I create the list of things that I want to obey because I know I can accomplish them. But then over here, I know there's a list of stuff that really is hard and I don't want to go there, so I kind of ignore it. It's kind of like a few weeks ago, we talked about the rich young ruler who created, Jesus said the law and he's, oh, I got the law. But then there was another list that Jesus said, like your wealth, and that was the one he didn't want him to go to. See, we do that too. We want to select so that we can obey the things we want to obey. It's kind of like the way we drive, the way we learn to drive. So when you first learn to drive, you know the rules of the road. In fact, Courtney is getting her permit again. We had to go through that in Oregon now and come to California. She has to start all over again. So we're, she's learning. And so, we, of course, you know, you go through the book and you go through all the stuff and driver's ed. So you know the rules of the road. So you ever watch a student driver or a young driver? What do they do? They actually stop at a stop sign. What a thought. They actually, when they make a lane change, they actually look over their shoulder, check their mirrors, and then go over with no hand gestures or anything to anybody around them. They actually obey the law. But then what happens over time? We don't fully stop at stop signs anymore. That's why they call it a California stop, right? 
I got pulled over in Oregon for a California stop. Seriously, that's what the officer said to me. He didn't even know I was from California, really. He said, that was a California stop. I'm like, well, yeah, it probably was. <laughs> and the speed limit. What is that? It's a suggestion, right? It's not a limit, isn't it? I know, I just went and visited family in Fresno, driving back down 99 in the 5. 70 miles an hour is optional, and nobody does it. They all do 80 or 85 or 90, right? They're like, oh, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, we all do. Because we're not convinced this is actually a limit. It's a law. It's just a suggestion. And if you go beyond the suggestion, it's at your own risk. So we risk. We do that with God. Where before we would have said, no, I, I, it grieves me when I disobey, and I, I don't want to do the wrong thing, so I really want to do the right thing, so I'll do it even though it's difficult. Then somehow over time, it becomes negotiable. It becomes optional. It becomes selective. So we get to this place where, where we used to obey God. Now, not so much. Only the things that are easy. But when you and I are confronted with God's will, it will require obedience because God's will is not our will. See, our will usually has to do with ease and comfort and routine. And God's will has to do with challenge and risk and danger and discomfort. Why? Because it's about something greater than us. And you and I have to be willing to say, okay, I'm going to obey. I'm going to do what he's asked me to do. Now shifting gears, focusing on Jesus, who in this tension in his own humanity demonstrates for you and I how we remain open to God's will in our life. Last week, I read a, a segment of the book, The Hole in Our Gospel by Richard Stearns, and he was confronted with a question that World Vision asked him in his first initial interview before he became the president of World Vision. And the interviewer asked him, are you open to God's will in your life? Which just completely turned him upside down because he had to come to grips in that moment. He wasn't really open to God's will. But how do you and I live a life that remains open to be responsive to God's purpose and God's will every day of our lives? Jesus is the example for that. The first thing that you and I can do in verse 41 sounds pretty basic, but it's pretty important, is pray. It says, Jesus, he withdrew about a stone's throw away from them, knelt down, and he prayed. Which, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus did that over and over and over again. He, he removed himself and prayed, but constantly he was in prayer because Jesus was constantly connected to the Father. And you and I need to understand the context of prayer is not a contract, it's not a duty, it's a relationship. And so Jesus lived in constant connection with the Father. So for him to pray at this moment made complete sense. And it wasn't this isolated incident where Jesus prayed, where sometimes you and I go a long time with ever engaging, ever out without engaging God in dialogue and, and conversation until we get that critical moment where we cry out for help because we've gotten ourselves in a mess. But Jesus, Jesus said it. He and the Father were one. There was this connection, and that was his prayer for us, that we would be one, and that we would be one with each other and with the Father, as connected as he was connected. So there's this ongoing connection. So at every moment of the day, Jesus was connected with the Father, because they're in a relationship. And when you're in a relationship, how do you know somebody? Through talking to them, through spending time with them, through engaging with them. So if, so if I'm to stand up here and say, you know, Kim and I have a great marriage, but by the way, we don't live in the same household. We rarely have your talk. We don't ever drive in the same car. Um, and she goes to first service and I go to second service. But we have a great marriage. Would you believe me? I hope not. If you saw that we actually spent time together and we spent hours talking to each other and we engaged each other and there was a definite relational connection, then you'd say, yeah, you know, I think maybe you do have a good marriage. 
Remember, the context of us engaging God is the context of relationship. Therefore, prayer should be normal. Prayer should be ongoing. That's why Paul said prayer without ceasing. And it wasn't though Paul was saying embrace some kind of strange lifestyle where you walk around with your eyes closed mumbling under your breath. He wasn't talking about that because you and I don't have to close our eyes to pray. We don't have to bow our heads. We do that to limit the distraction around us and to show reverence to God. But there's an ongoing dialogue that you and I should be having with God. That is prayer. And that's why in this moment that Jesus in this tension of his will and the Father's will, of course, it's a natural outflow. He's telling his disciples to pray. Why? Because he's praying because that's what he's always done, is prayed. So for you and I to stay open to God's will, you and I have to be in constant dialogue with God. You and I should be praying when we're driving down the road, when we're engaged in conversation. I'll tell you how many times, if you've ever met with me for lunch or you've ever had me, had me in a counseling session with you, if you ask me a question nine times out of ten, I'll tell you what's going on in my mind. God, give me the wisdom of your Holy Spirit right now because I'm in over my head. I don't have an answer for this person, and you have to help me. So when you see a blank stare on my face, that's what's going on up here, okay? Because I know God is present, and prayer is normal, and it's a part of our daily lives, and it helps us to embrace God's will. Second thing, look at verse 42, is we remain open to God's will when we surrender our will. So Jesus says, verse 42, powerful words. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. What is Jesus talking about? When he says, take this cup, the cup he's talking about is the cup of the wrath of God. That in just a short amount of time, he's going to go to the cross. And sometimes we don't fully appreciate what Jesus did on the cross for us. It wasn't this momentary physical reality of death for Jesus. It was far beyond that. You see, because God is just, and when sin occurs, payment has to be made for that sin. And what is poured out on sin is God's judgment, His righteous anger and wrath gets poured out on sin. And so for us to be able to not have to endure that, Jesus had to take that on Himself. I just want you to imagine for just a moment... Think about all of humanity for all time, for all sin. In one moment, Jesus took on the full wrath of God on himself for us. So can you imagine when Jesus praying? That's why he says his, his tears, his sweat was as blood. Because what he was saying is this cup of wrath, in a few, few moments, in a few hours, I'm going to be on the cross and your wrath will be poured out on me because we love the world. But if there's any other way, take this cup from me so that I don't have to endure your wrath. But then what does he say? Not what's best for me, not what's easiest for me, but ultimately what your purpose is. That is huge. That is, that is an overwhelming prayer. None of us have ever had to pray that prayer. Now, we have to pray that prayer in our context. But God's never asked us to take on the fullness of his wrath. He did his own son for you and I. But you and I have to be willing to surrender our will, which means surrendering what we think is best for our lives, surrendering the script or the roadmap that we've laid out that says, this is how my life is supposed to go. Because we all have it. And even in our greatest intentions of saying, okay, God, I want to do your will. And when God begins to speak and you begin to know that there's something that God's stirring in you or you start to see a little bit of what maybe God's wanting you to do in your life, you and I quickly start to fill in the blanks for God. 
We start to get out ahead. Instead of we trust him to, to kind of put that spark in our hearts to, to, to get our attention to move forward. But then we don't wait for the next step. We kind of take the next step on our own. Anybody ever experienced that? You kind of fill it in. Why? Because you fill it in with things that you want to do. Kim and I did this about eight years ago before we went to Newburgh. We knew that God was at work in our hearts and he was stirring us about some transition in our lives. And so we began to process through that. In fact, Rob and Janet had, and we're here today, wonderful supervisors and great friends. And we sat down with them and they helped us process through what the change meant in our life. But as we started to unfold that, we sitting down with Rob and Janet and some other friends, and we started to get some idea of maybe what God was doing in us. And so something that came on the radar was the possibility of planting a church in Texas. I think I might have shared this story with you before. So we thought, wow. There's not a lot of four-square churches in the Austin area. And so we thought, well, God, we think maybe that's what you're wanting us to do. So we spent a 1000 bucks. We booked ticket, uh, tickets on a plane and booked hotels, met with the supervisor, and went to Round Rock, which is the northern suburb of Austin, and Dell Computers headquarters. And so we got there, and, and Kim and I were already starting to, like, plan. We're, like, on the ground, like, we could live here. We could get jobs there. We could do this. And we're getting all excited, and, and we're, like, laying it all out. And as the three days unfolded, it was the three of the most horrific and horrible days of my life. Because in those three days, Kim will tell you the same thing. There was this excitement about what could be and this deep and painful reservation, but God's not saying you're supposed to do this. I remember sitting in the airport in Austin, totally frustrated. Like I just spent a thousand bucks and you didn't say yes. Like God was in a corner like he had to say yes to me. And we hung on to that thing for two weeks. We got back... And we were back in Ventura, and I'm like, no, we just got to push through this. We got to make it happen. So I'm calling Dell Computer. We're filling out resumes online. I'm, we're looking at housing. We're doing all these things until finally one day, God spoke to me. God spoke to Kim independently. We started talking one night. We said, God, say something new. Yeah, God, say something new. Yeah. What did he say? He said, I'm saying no to Austin because you haven't fully embraced Newberg yet. And we had been called in the process about considering moving to Newburgh, and we had shut it down because it didn't fit into the script or roadmap that we were writing for our lives. I'll tell you, I am so grateful that God got our attention because the seven years in Newburgh were the most amazing years of ministry in my life. And I know this is going to be even more amazing because we went on the same journey to get here. Okay, God, what do you want us to do? Where do you want us to be? We'll surrender that. The danger you and I have is when we want to do God's will that we'll try to do it for him instead of letting him unfold it for us. Because God's will is not tomorrow. God's will is today. God's will is each moment. And when we are obedient to that, we will discover God's will as he leads. That's why Jesus said, follow me. And he didn't hand his disciples a roadmap. He gave them a compass, and the compass is Jesus. That's how we follow. Where he leads, we go, and we live out God's will. And then the third thing in verse 43 is that we need to embrace God's strength. So Jesus prays, he lays down his will, he submits to the Father, and then it says in verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Look at the order of the verses. Jesus says, not my will, yours. And then what happens in the next verse? He's strengthened, he's encouraged, he's comforted. See, we like to write it the other way around. We say, okay, God, some really bad stuff's going to happen. Can you just give me all the things that I need so it doesn't hurt and it's okay and it's not too uncomfortable and then I'll do it. Jesus had to lay down his will first and then the power of the Father came to him. 
then the strength of God came to him. And that's the challenge that you and I face when it comes to living out God's will in our life, is that it is going to be over our heads because it's not our will, it's God's will. But for you and I to experience God's strength and his encouragement and his power in our life, we have to live beyond ourselves. And we don't get to experience that until we live beyond ourselves. That's why the power of God is not contained in the moment before something overwhelming happens. It's actually in that moment that as we step out and say, Okay, God, I'm surrendering myself to you. That God brings his power, his strength, and his comfort in our lives. But we want that first. We want that assurance because, again, it's not about him. It's about us, what's best for us. I was reading through the book of Galatians. I was caught by the first verses, the first verse that Paul wrote just about himself. He says, this is what Galatians 1.1 says. He says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. When I was reading through I just stopped because I realized what Paul had experienced was summarized in that passage. Up until the point Paul met Jesus, Paul was about himself. Although he would say he was about God, ultimately he was about his own agenda. And in that, he was from men for men. He was sent by men because he was a man to do his own will, not God's will. And then Jesus gets a hold of him, and ultimately it all changes. That when we live out God's will, we are sent from Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus. It's not about us anymore. It completely changes. And when I started grappling that, I wrote down these questions that I'm, I, in my journal. Let me just ask them. You can ponder them on your own. But about my own life, the first question is, how much do I, I do and say and live that is actually by me and for me? In other words, it has absolutely nothing to do with God, but it just has to do with me. Do I ever stop to consider if I am living by myself and for myself and not by and for Jesus? Do I need Jesus to live my life or am I living my life by myself and for myself instead of for Jesus and with him? The last question I ask myself, will people say when they look at my life, wow, it's amazing how much he accomplished on his own, or will they say, wow, it's amazing what God was able to accomplish through his life? I have to ask this, myself the question, and sadly, if I'm honest with you, which I am, there are many days that go by, and I look back and think, I didn't need God today. Everything I did was things that I could do with my own ability. I didn't need Him for anything. Therefore, I wasn't living fully in His will. I was living in my will for the day, but I know if I was living in His will, I had to rely on His power in my life because I finally stepped beyond myself. Jesus in his humanity lays down his life, lays down his will and says, not mine, but yours, and sees God do something amazing through him. Then the final thing in verse 44 is this, is the same what we began with is what we end with. Pray more. So if we want to, if we want to be open to God's will, it begins and it ends with prayer. So it says, and being in, ang- in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So Jesus prays again. He reengages again. Why? Because prayer is a part of it. Whereas first we talked about this prayer is this natural thing that Jesus constantly did because he was in relationship with the Father. But then you get to this point where Jesus knows what he's just said to the Father. He knows what's at stake. He knows what's coming. And he comes to grips with that. And his prayer takes on a whole different element. Because now he realizes how much he needs the power of the Father through him to accomplish God's purpose. 
And it's a prayer of desperation. It's a prayer of anguish. It's a prayer that I've called out to God because I need His help. And it's different than the prayer that also is a healthy prayer that many times we end up praying, which is, I just got myself in over my head in my own sin, and God, I need your help. And God answers that prayer. But ask yourself this question. When was the last time you were living so fully outside of yourself that you realized you were so desperate and dependent on God to accomplish His purpose that you cried out to Him for help? That's what Jesus is doing. Far beyond His human capacity, He was doing this. When was the last time? See, if you and I don't live out God's will, let me just be honest with you, that we don't need to pray. Because we don't need God's help. But when we step outside of ourselves and we embrace God's will, we are desperate for God to break through because we know what he's calling us to is far bigger, far greater, far deeper than anything we can accomplish on our own. I want to play a short video for you and then I'll close with a story. But just wanted you to hear the words. This is actually David Platt and just some words that were put on a screen. It's a challenge. When I listened to it, I thought, oh, man, I need to embrace that concept of prayer. I need to understand that every day in my life. So go ahead and listen to these words. I want to close with the story of a, a woman who is a friend of ours from Newburgh who um, probably doesn't even fully realize how much she's impacted me by her own example and her own journey. Her name's Debbie, and a number of years ago, Debbie was a wonderful lady but very afraid to do anything beyond herself, and she would tell you this. In fact, um, she attended church for a long time, and... She had seen different opportunities within the church to engage and to do things that she knew would be on herself. And she'd always kind of stayed in the back and never really engaged. But through some friends and through some prodding and through some pushing, she had decided to be a part of one of the teams that we were sending down to the Dream Center in Los Angeles. This is a huge step for her to ever think to actually do something beyond what was normal for her. And so she made the commitment and she raised the funds and she went on the team. And so after the team went for a week and they came back, we had a Sunday morning where they were sharing testimonies of what God had done through them and the amazing things that they had experienced and what God had done in the lives of people around them. And so there were some great testimonies. And then Debbie started to share. And so as we were listening, and so she started to share about how, how hard it was for her even to go on the trip and how difficult it was for her. And so she started to share kind of her her big moment for this week of helping people in inner city Los Angeles. And she said, you know, She goes, in my life for me, she goes, I've always been afraid to talk to people. Just talking to people that I don't know that are different than me. And so she said we were doing one outreach and we're walking down the street. And I really felt like I was supposed to talk to this person who was there on the street. And and so I I did it. And so she shared how I went over and I talked. And so as as I could tell, as the congregation is listening, we're like, okay, we're waiting for the big moment where you like lay hands on them and they like, they get healed or they get saved. And this is grandiose moment. Everyone's waiting. And she's sharing the story. And she goes in and I went over and I talked to them. And that was the end of the story. That was it. And the the microphone got handed to the next person. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, we got to change that by the next service because that's just, that's not enough. I mean, people need more, right? You know, they gave for this. And honestly, I'm being honest. That's what's going through my mind. That's it? She just talked to somebody? You spent a week in L.A., and the highlight of your moment is you talked to somebody. That's what I was thinking. But then I started to watch her life after that. At the time, we were having ongoing prayer gatherings for global prayer. And as a church, we were gathering to pray. And, and she suddenly, suddenly starts showing up to these gatherings. It wasn't there before. And beyond that, she starts praying in groups of people, which she had never done before. 
And then before I know it, a couple months goes by, and we had adopted one of the areas we adopted in our community, an apartment complex. She starts showing up. Every time they have a, a barbecue and they're connecting with people, she starts showing up. And I started, we were, my family, we were going to this. And I'm watching this woman who wouldn't talk to anybody. She doesn't know going and engaging people she doesn't even know. Talking to them, building relationship, knowing them the next time she comes. And about a year and a half ago, we were putting another second team to, to go to Uganda. And she came forward and said, I want to go. And about a little less than a year ago, her and her husband went on the team that a church sent to Uganda. And she stood before hundreds of people in a church in Uganda through an interpreter and shared how God had restored her husband and her relationship in their marriage and the amazing things that God had done. And she spent two and a half to three weeks in Uganda serving in medical clinics and doing all these things totally outside of herself. And when she came back and shared her testimony of what she did in Uganda, most people, if they had just watched the journey that this woman had gone through, it's a complete change of who she was three years earlier. Because she started by talking to somebody that she didn't know. Because in that moment for her, that was the will of God. And in the next moment, God knew that she would be obedient. And so she was living out the will of God every day. And now she's amazing. She's a different person. She loves people. She loves the world. She's willing to sacrifice anything to help people know Jesus, to engage people. Why? Because she, back three years ago, was willing to say, I'll start with surrendering my will in this moment and doing something that's so far outside myself. She, she would have never, t- could have, t- would tell you, she would have never known that three years later she would be in Uganda. Now, am I saying everyone's journey ends that way? No. Or lays out that way? No. But what I do know is every single day, you and I are confronted with my will or God's will. And I don't think God's will is a mystery. We make it that because we want to avoid it. Because God's will is obedience every day. God's will confronts us every morning we get out of bed. God's will is right there when you and I are going to work or we're going to school or we're encountering people. God's will is always present for us to live out because God's purpose is to love people. And he's called us to do the same. And if we would just be willing to lay down our agenda for the day and lay down our script for our lives, we would actually be on a different narrative. We would be on a different story. We would be in God's story, and God's story is always better than our story if we're willing to embrace it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for, again, your amazing example. And not only in all the examples that we have seen throughout the Gospel of Luke, but this one, Lord Jesus, being extremely personal for you in your willingness to lay down your will, your agenda, your life for us. And Lord, I I ask that you would help us to not be overwhelmed with what it means to embrace your will. But Lord, that we would see the opportunities that you give to us when we do. Because Lord, I can't help but realize on a much grander scale of what you've done, obviously, that when you said yes to the Father and you went to the cross and you suffered pain and you died and you rose again, you changed eternity. All because in that moment in the garden, you said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. That, Lord, I'm convinced because the power of your Spirit who lives in us is at work in us today, that if we will be willing to have the same, Lord Jesus, for you, that we would be willing to say to you, not my will, but yours be done in every area of our lives. 
that, Lord, there will be eternal impact in the lives of not only us, but people around us. So, Lord Jesus, we are offering ourselves to you, that you would take our lives as we surrender to you, that you would take the sacrifice of our life and make it something amazing for your kingdom and your purpose and your will. And, Lord Jesus, as we sing this song in just a few moments, Lord Jesus, capture our hearts by the words. Let them speak to our souls of our commitment to follow you and what it really means for us to lay down our lives to follow you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.